Thank you. Yes. Um, I would have a, a couple of questions, actually. So that's, that's two questions. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one is, uh, let's say, if I have a certain belief or a certain view or a certain opinion, how can I know that it's an assumption or that it's an act accurate reflection of reality? So that's my first question. And the second question is um, how to train the mind to um, not react to emotions or desires, so to not get carried away, to not um, identify with uh, mm -hmm. emotions and desires and that sort of things. First one easy, second one a bit more depth, but first one easy. If you want to know if your opinions and views are real, just wait until somebody contradicts you and see what happens. <laughs> Do you suffer when somebody says rubbish? Your opinion is nonsense. You know? That's one way to know whether it's really something you have completely digested, completely integrated, it's been part of you, you know, you know, you have an opinion based on experience, you know, cause and effect, you know. That's the uh, proof that something is real, is that, you know, it's very much um, the result of experience. And the second one, is about how to deal with reaction and f mood and so on. Yeah. Yes, how, how, to, how to train the mind not to be carried away. Well, there are many ways, of course, of training the mind. Um, the recognition that you need training is a good step because that, take us that takes us to the willingness to learn. So that's not always obvious. We might want to learn, but there's no willingness to learn. You know, it's an idea. That would be a good to meditate, but we're not willing to do it yet. You know, it's a good idea. So, um, when that happens, you know, so you're willing to learn. Now, the next step is to actually to act on this willingness to learn. And then, to be able to recognize something through a perspective of mindfulness, the Dharma perspective, then you have to learn how to look, because you may be aware, and looking is not just through the eyes, the feeling in the body is a way of mirroring, it's like mirroring something, you see something through the feeling, Vedana, or through a mood, see. And now, to be able to look at something and not move, just to be able to have this inner stability that enables you to look at the mind as if you were looking at it under a microscope. But if the mind is constantly agitated, you know, then. But you can still see a pond with lots of little fish around. So under a microscope, you can see a pond and lots of little creatures swimming around. You can see them. But the pond is not constantly going this way and that way, otherwise you can't see anything, too many waves. Yeah? 
So when you, um, you know, so seeing and then noticing and um, noticing the Buddha, you know, teaches us to to look at change. That's very important. The change is so important because that liberates the mind of this heavy feeling that you're stuck with something. You know, when she, when you see clearly from you see your consciousness and the the content of your consciousness and that you can see that everything is changing and moving, then you start being more dispassionate about it. It's like you say, oh yeah, okay, well that's changing, you know, I can see that. I don't need to get so worked up about it. So that's the seeing and the kind of understanding aspect, you know. And the next one will be not forgetting <laughs> to continue that seeing, you know. So, you know, it's it's very difficult to walk the path. It's very difficult to go against habit, you know, very difficult to go against entrenched conditioning. And most of us are very addicted to delusion. You know, we are the addict of avidya in the sense that, um, you know, we, we um, you know, until you wake up, you tend to be programmed by these forces of avidya, force of avidya. And um, the next most important factor is patience. Patience, because I mean, we've heard Ajahn Amaro's quote at Jansha several times lately, and uh, it's always a quote that's really worth hearing. You know, it's like practice is like 70% not getting it right, even when you want to, and maybe 20, 30% you get it right, you know. So you can see why the Buddha talks, it, talks about developing something. It's not like you get something and you're there. It's you develop the path, you know, through maybe a right speech, you know, you feel careful. What brings these emotions? Is it just an inner conditions that brings up this emotion? Like too much coffee, too much drinks, too much food, too much this, too much sex, too much whatever it is that brings all these emotions, you know? You know, having a lot of anger and a lot of uh, greed or something, you know, an overdose of greed or anger. Is it something that comes from outside because somebody is upset with you and that's very upsetting. When somebody is upset, you can get also the energy of, you know, if you're not free from that energy yet, you still, you can catch the bug, so to speak, you know. Somebody shouts at you for even for two minutes, you start feeling really the, the, the reverberation of that um, you know, vibration. So that means that practice has to do also with building up a container that is strong enough to withstand the power of the, those forces, external forces, you know, internal forces also, but external forces. You know, the power of attraction, a power of greed. You see something, I want it, I can't live without it, you know. Or the power of money, the power of so many things, the power of, you know. And it doesn't mean that you have to become a miserable, kind of, you know, frustrated renunciate, you know. But it's a matter of, you know, finding a balance. And, um, yeah, it's very difficult. Once you know that it's difficult, once you recognize the reality of this path, then you're not annoyed with yourself or with others because you don't get it. 
or you, you don't do the work that needs to be done because you're too lazy at some point or you just lose interest or, you know, I, I call myself, I have an umbrella for all these uh, obstacles we get on the way. It's like Mara, you know, Mara, the, uh, the devil of Buddhism, you know, Mara and, uh, three daughters or four daughters, I can't remember. Sometimes it's she, sometimes it's he. Sometimes it has an army, you know, so we don't know whether she's a chief lieutenant or caporal or whatever. We don't quite know, but what I find interesting, because the Buddhist teaching really asks you to be um, self-reliant in a way, in terms of training your mind, nobody else can do that for you. Seeing your mind, nobody else can do that. Even if so, you had a psychic that can see everything in your mind, still changing three minutes later, you know. When I was in Thailand, people used to say, oh, you know, he, my teacher there, oh, he can see what's, what's in your mind. I said, well, that makes two of us. What a bore. You know, I watch my mind all day long. You know, somebody watch, they, if they want to watch my mind with me, I invite them, it's fine, you know. <laughs> it's like boring to watch my mind, you know. <laughs> No problem, nothing to hide, you know. And so, um, yeah, to be able to, little by little, um, just noticing that it's difficult will give you the energy to put effort into things, you know. It's like noticing the disease gives you an impetus to follow right path. You know, if you, if you, you don't get interested in, 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 in healing or doing something for your body, unless it gets sick very often, doesn't it? You, you wait until that moment where it's threatened by death sometime to start giving up certain things that has made it unhealthy for a long time, perhaps. Yeah? Uh, answer your question? Enough, huh? Okay. <laughs> I would say that it will be very, it's very important when you start a passive practice to determine, to look into this ethical aspect of the path, because that's one of the things that gives you the confidence to, um, that you are, quote unquote, on top of your, of your mind, if you see, rather than the slave of your mind. When you feel the slave of your mind, it's always a bit disheartening. And the feeling of not respecting oneself. You know, but these things happen. When you feel the slave of your mind, then you just notice the state of mind. You know, that feel like a slave of one's mind. But you don't need to feel bad or, you know, undermine yourself because you feel a slave rather than the, the chief of your mind, you know, the primary chief. Any more questions? Wow. Ah. I thought we'd cleared all dance. Um, on the subject, when we're looking at um, assumption, so we're looking at the contents of the mind which actually are the mind, you know, the contents of our mind, whether they're, they're changing or not, are part of mind. Mind creates those, 
mind is aware of those. But we can, we can have the experience, but we cannot see the experiencer. So in a lot of traditions, um, when they're talking, they talk in this way that actually there is only the experience. That, that. But in human life, say, for a person that was suffering from, um, say, a terminal disease, or you're dealing with a sick person in the family, or even yourself, the reality, if you have a terminal disease or some kind of uh, life bomb happens, mm. that is a reality. That illness is there. Mm. Um, so if you're talking to that person, you can say to that person, well, it's only a mind state, but in the background, the illness is there, the reality. Um, that seems to be the problem for a lot of people who are suffering in that way. So it's trying to find ways. The only way I seem to be able to help people like that is compassion, you know? It's not using um, uh, a theory or um, a doctrine. It's actual one-to-one -one compassion. That's right. So is that a question or a statement? A bit of both, really, because I wanted, you know, you obviously in your experience have been to help people or you've spoken to a lot of people who have life bombs happen. People, you know, if you've got a life bomb, where do you run to? You run to a, 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 a life what? A life bomb, you know. When bomb. It, bomb, when yeah. it all falls apart, you know. Yeah. So you either run to a psychologist or a, a spiritual teacher or maybe a doctor and they give you a pill. But, yeah. you know, when that happens to people, how do you approach that? I have a, always a very good uh, example in my, in my mind, um, which I think is a, that's, would answer your question quite well. Um, some years ago, I was at a conference, uh, speaking at a conference of Christian monks and Buddhist monks and nuns and Christian monks and nuns and some lay teachers and university professors and so on. And it was an interface gathering between Buddhists and Christian. And uh, there was a, a Zen teacher called John Daidolori. And at some point, I had to present something on um, uh, the suffering of... Uh, it was on suffering in different uh, areas. Suffering of, you know, in a materialistic world, suffering of self, suffering of uh, structure, suffering in sickness for me. I was with, with four speakers like that, talking about suffering of sickness. And of course, that also talked about death and so the three, you know, LOJ sickness and death. And Joy Daidolori described how he looked after his grandmother in the last few hours before she died. And he came, he was from Italian origin, American, but from Italian origin. And he started kind of um, sitting at the bedside of his grandmother, you know, he started um, doing the rosary in English, you know, because she was just barely spoke a bit of English, you know, so started doing the rosary. He said, well, I, as a Zen master, you know, what can I do? I can't do Zen, you know, with my grandmother. I mean, all she knows is rosary. You know, I can't just tell her, you know, move and sort of get to the, you know, <laughs> the last, last breast, get into a koan or something. So he he started the rosary in English and he started relaxing a little bit and then suddenly it dawned on him, but well, she's Italian, why don't we do the rosary in Italian, you know? And then she died doing the rosary in Italian language, you know. So I think that answers your question, doesn't it? At some level, um 
I mean, you're questioning your statement, you said it was a bit of both, you know, but it's like when people die, it's better not to have any idea of dying, you know, it's better not to have any idea. As you say, compassion is the most important thing, and sometimes compassion makes you do something, you know, unexpected, you know. Yeah, I remember my, my mother passed away after quite a long illness, you know, I, I just kept, you know, without thinking, I just said, don't worry, mommy, it's just not you, not yours, it's left the body, the body, and, uh, yeah, I have no idea what I was doing, for feelings, and then, you know, your thoughts are not yours. I just felt like I did that, I have no idea, you know, we did talk about Buddhism for a few years before that, you know, but she was not particularly into Buddhism. So each one of us have to respond, you know, um, we could say, you know, you say from the heart, it's a bit vague word, you know. But to respond in a way we can be quite attuned. And there is no, there is not one way, do you know what I mean? Compassion might not be what people want even. Do you know what I mean? It's like, maybe they just want a bit of clarity about how to get through the next breath, you know. But you could say that compassion and wisdom, you know, in this moment become like the, more like the, the base, you know, from where you come from. So, um, yeah, I think it's talked about quite a bit, about how to approach sickness and death like that amongst the carers, you know, that there is no, you know, not to um, have too many, not to have any idea, too many ideas about how things should be, you know, and... Uh, become quite rigid in how to approach this kind of situation which none of us have any experience from, you know, of, you know, death and dying, you know, until you get there, it's not really your thing, is it? You're not really into this until it happened. So you can forgive the carer for not doing it quite right since they're still kind of playing football and, you know, taking, running around and being useful, maybe, you know, so, different. Does that make, is that something that helpful for you? Yeah, sort of, but most of the people that have that um, thing come in their life, the problem they have is that they will always make assumptions about how it's going to end if somebody's got any form of serious sickness, and that seems to be what I, punishes is, the person, you know? Are you talking about the patient or the carer? The patient. The patient, yeah. Well, that's normal. You know, it's the unknown. If they haven't, if they haven't trained their minds, you know, to be accept the unknown, then that's what happened. You know, you want to find something known. It's normal, because the unknown is totally unacceptable for a consciousness that has not worked with it. It's like being on on the edge of a cliff and you have no idea where to go. You just think you're going to drop into the void. So people tend to fill it up, you know, to make sure that you're hanging onto the cliff. Yeah. Mm. Even though you're not hanging onto the cliff, anyway. Anyway, it's illusion. Yeah. So, Martin. Yeah, and then, what's your name? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Since we've moved on to the subject of, of people dying. Um, I think it would help if I relate the experience I had recently of um, my wife, Esna, dying um, after 65 years of being 
friend, companion, wife, mother of my son, in fact, everything to me, the other, the feminine half of me. And she asked me about, ooh, about five days before she died of, of vascular dementia, um, she asked me why she could still talk, because she gave up talking a little while later. She said to me, am I dying? That's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> so I gave the one answer I thought I could safely give, and that was, we are all dying. And when she heard the answer, I thought she was going to ask for an explanation. But no, she smiled, and there wasn't a lot of her brain left. It was shrinking away, and one would think she wasn't the same person as she had always been, but she was, but just having le much lesser faculties. And she answered, she followed up with the, her comment, well, that's all right then. <laughs> and it shows how much you don't notice what the effect that the, the, the practice of, of meditation and, and, and the Dhamma do have for you. But when the chips are down, mm. it, was, it, it was infinitely valuable. And uh, yeah. that's something which is, I, I wouldn't say this is, this is the way it is, believe it, believe this. No, this is the way it was for her. And this is the way she responded and she got the benefit from it. So mm. it must have been something mm. in, her, in her life. And I, I'm very much grateful for that. Mm. It works. And that's, as um, with my scientific background, uh, I, I feel, look, this is the way we treat medicines. Does it work? If it works, good. If it doesn't work, throw it out. Mm. And um, you've got to just do things for yourself. That's so right. it's, that, it's that independence that we seem to gain. And, but you don't realize that we're getting it. I hope I'll be able to be a stoical. Mm. We'll see. Yeah. I just um, visited an old friend of ours um, called Vittoria in Italy, and she's 94, and she's in the uh, retirement home. And, uh, you know, for 10 years I just heard that you could not talk to her, you could not, uh, she could not hear well. Um, you know, it was difficult to get hold of her, blah, blah, blah. So she spent seven years here, seven or eight years, coming for two months every year in the, during the Vasa. Then she couldn't come for real health reason or old age. And so um, I, when I called her, she was very happy I'd come, and she asked me to ask the monastery to help us out with driving, so we had a very nice person who drove us to her. And there was Victoria, beaming like a sunshine, speaking perfect English, um, um, you know, very clear in her speech, and she had no hearing aids, no glasses, nothing, and she could hear and she could see everything. So it's interesting, just, you know, uh, assumption, 
sometime. It's not like nobody was lying, you know, saying that she was. But there were some people she didn't want to see particularly, you know, and I'm an old friend, so, and I think for, yeah, it, it, it was easy for her to have me there. And so it's just amazing just to see, and the reason why I mention her name is because she said to me, you know, for me, the past is finished. The only time I have now is now. In the present moment, that's the only place where I can find peace. And you know what she means. The, f the future is not peaceful necessarily. You don't know the future. But it's now. She, she can find peace. And she's so radiant. I just wanted to share this little kind of um, little piece of jewel, you know. Because it was really a teaching, you know, profound teaching, which we know, I mean, the present moment is a, is a place, you know, of, of awakening and clarity. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a portal, you know, for that sort of thing. So that's what I wanted to mention that to you, you know, how this present moment experience to practice, because you were, somebody mentioned, you know, it was you, Martin, I think, who said the practice little by little, you know, trickles through. And when you find yourself with a bunch of old people, most of them have brain dead, more or less, you know, walking around brain dead, you know, it's like, wow, you know, we'll be that one day, you know. But she still had her brain, she could still think and talk and speak and all that kind of thing, you know, and, but she's also taught yoga for 40 years, so that helps too. But it was just an amazing thing, because I expected really a Victoria that's kind of really old, you know, not at all. She was with her, She had a, a, you know, a, what do you call that? A, a walker, and she was upright, very upright, beaming with light, and uh, invited us to have a cup of something, coffee, Italy, get coffee, and uh, we spent a few hours with her, and it's just a real teaching for for all of us, you know, just to see somebody upright and somebody, but she always been very very conscious person. She looked after her body. She looked after me, she did meditate, she looked after her meditation. And she was always very disciplined, I think that helped, you know, very disciplined. She knew what she wanted in this life, in a way, you know. And she put her mind to it, she did it. It was quite amazing. Oh yes, that's right, sorry. Uh, oh, we need a we need a microphone so everybody can hear you. You see, it's a question that can be so useful to so many people. So my question has a couple of parts to it, really. But it's really about how we see clearly. How how does um, ethical conduct allow us to see clearly? And the reason why I was thinking about this is because, as you were talking, you were saying something. And please forgive me if I kind of misquote this, but you were saying something along the lines of, um, you know, kind of when the Buddha was seeking enlightenment, um, there were the daughters of Mara, etc., etc., coming at him, um, but he didn't essentially push things away. That's you know, right. what, what, what gives that kind of stability? Because it seems to me that if we want to see clearly, we need some level of stability. Mm -hmm. So then the other part of my question is, is ethical conduct enough? Yeah. Does that make sense? Total sense, yeah. Okay. 
You know, ethical conduct is um, very important on the path. And to me, as a nun, of course, it's part of my life. And many people follow the same path around me, so that's not so difficult, you know. I'm reminded all the time by others, uh, you know, that I have committed myself to this ethical standard and I don't want to forget it, you know. And personally, um, you know, I imagine if I was a lay person, um, knowing me, um, I could spend a lot of time doing something very different from Dharma. <laughs> you know, I, it's a way of just um, channeling your time and space, you know, and also, um, it's, you know, if you look at the precepts, they all have, very, they all have a very profound dimension. It's not just, I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of erotic behavior. I mean, as if you're in a monastery, otherwise to have other partners beside the one I, I am with, you know, a stable partner. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying, which is also, when you study the speech precept, is about gossiping and... Uh, cruel language or angry language or, you know, or um, coarse language. And the last one, I refrain from, uh, you know, taking intoxicant, alcohol or drugs, which cloud the consciousness. So they are profound in the sense that they are reminding you that the path that you have chosen is um, priority in your life. So, and they remind you that when you act or speak or, or, or think, you begin to develop in yourself the mind of loving kindness, of compassion, of carefulness about harming other beings, you know, whether it's a human being, a man, a woman, a dog, a cat, or a fly, you know, you begin to nurture in your mind the states of mind of loving kindness and compassion. See? Ahimsa in, in Sanskrit, you know? Um, you know, non-violence. So you are developing in you qualities of non-violence. So it goes very deep, you see? These precepts are one line. But in reality, if you use them in daily life and you and remind remember them, it's like a study. You know, it's like uh, going to school. You study this inner study. Uh, the precepts on speech is probably the hardest one. You know, because um, in a way, your speech is also expressing what goes on in your mind. So it's one which is most. Uh, I could say it's the one that's most. Um, mixed up with self-consciousness, you know, the sense of self is really hurt when you start saying something that makes you realize what's going on in your mind and you feel embarrassed that to let the whole world know about this, you know, by swearing at somebody or saying some gross word, you know, because you're angry and you're fed up with someone, you know. So, with the precepts on speech, you begin to refine your speech a bit, you know, it's like it's not always easy. Because sometimes you always shut up, you want to see somebody, but you know, you realize that it depends where you are. You know, if you are like in charge of the group of people, like, you know, when I'm a senior nun in a, in a group, for example, 
I have to be very careful about my speech because my speech become very important. You know, what I say has an effect, more effect on somebody else. But the very fact, the very fact that I am, you know, in sort of senior position. So I have to be double, triple, quadruple more careful how I express myself so that I am careful not to hurt this person. But I want to say what I want to say as well. So there's a skill there. And that is um, how you develop, you know, the bhavana, which is a word that the Buddha talks, uh, use for meditation. You develop little by little the ability to say exactly what you want to say without hurting somebody, you know. And that is not overnight, you know. It's, you learn little by little. That's why sometimes I find things like nonviolent communication training very good. I don't know if you have ever heard this, like NVC or certain speech training, you know, where you can actually say something to somebody else without feeling that they're responsible for your problem, you know. It's a skill, little by little. So, do you understand? These precepts go deep. They go deep. Not taking drugs and intoxicant. You know, I was with people drinking. When I was in Italy, people were drinking around me, you know. They'll say it's nothing for them, just normal. One glass, two glasses, three glasses a night or something. Or, But maybe... Meditation, you know, but clear seeing, you know, when you meditate, you begin to see the slight effect of your actions. Something you will never have noticed before. Suddenly, you begin to see that maybe if you drink a couple of glasses of wine or something, it has an effect on you that may not be beneficial in terms of clear consciousness. If you're conscious, if you don't care about your consciousness, then go go for it. And if you want to drink, drink and uh, forget about yourself, you know. But if you are in trouble afterwards, don't you know? Don't be surprised. Sometimes, huh? We get into a lot of trouble when we are not master of our mind, and we master of our, you know, not aware of what's happening, what we are doing, what we are saying. That's how. People kill each other, you know, you, you can harm your children, you know, people go and get very angry. It's like interesting because some people drink and they, it's almost like they smother the anger for a while because the drinking kind of make you forget about it and then the anger comes even in great force afterwards. That's how you can see a lot of ruined families, you know, when somebody is an addict or... A, or alcoholic, you know, then that's what happened, you know, they, so, at first they didn't think they were going to harm themselves, you know, they just oh, one drink from time to time, you know. But the habit of addiction in people's mind is quite strong, you know, not everybody has it, but, you know, it's a tendency, you have to be careful, the tendency to addiction to anything. It could be even an addiction to marshmallows, you know, like with your diabetic condition after a few years, you know. Eating sugar in bags and bags or whatever. You know, I'm just make a joke about marshmallows. But yeah, the tendency to get addicted to something, even anger. People get addicted to anger. Without the anger, they're not alive. Even here, people tell me, I've got to be angry, otherwise I'm not alive. I said, um, I think the Buddha said something quite different. He said, just be mindful of your anger, you know, and start dropping it. 
you know. And your aliveness comes from your letting go rather than for acting on your anger. <laughs> so, but it takes a long time to know how to do these things because, um, you know, very, for a long time one is not confident in one's intention. It's still the intention is not clear. So sometimes it's good to clarify one's intention before you do something or before you say something. You, so you and yourself, you, you may have a lot of subconscious intention. You know, maybe I want to hurt this person, or I want to hate her, or I want to take revenge for something, whatever. You know. But then you say, no, I'm going to say what I want to say, with that intention of clearly saying how it affects me, or whatever. You know. But it's quite a training you know, to get to that point. You know, so I really encourage you to go that way. And so, the Buddha, at some point in his teaching, he says, he has a, his disciple called Ananda, his cousin, who was his attendant, assistant for most of his life. And Ananda says to the Buddha, his famous sutta, I won't tell you all of it, but just he says, why sila? Why, why virtue? Why ethic? Why do we, you know? He said, to, um, for the you know so that there is no regret in the mind. I don't know if you've read this 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 teaching. You know, no regret. What is the purpose of sila? No regret. What is the purpose of no regret? He said, no doubt. You know, and so this training in ethics have to be seen through the path of practice within the Buddhist teaching. You know, like for example, doubt confusion, restlessness, worry, are called the five obstacles. And when you meditate, you realize the, the power of those five obstacles, and they are most important state of mind to know and understand. Because the Buddha warns us that, the Buddha teaching warns us that if you still identify with the mental states, wisdom cannot manifest. <laughs> you know. The mind is too clouded, it's too confused. It's not fit for wisdom to appear. For wisdom to appear, you have to have an awakened quality of the mind. Otherwise, it's just the mind just dormant, just sleeps, you know. That's in this context that you understand more ethics, a constant context of meditation, discovering the clear mind, discovering the cloudy mind, discovering the confused mind, discovering the vast mind, and then you begin to get more interested in the vast mind and the not confused mind, and then the precept makes sense. Otherwise, not necessarily. Do you know what I mean? So it's important that to see the context in which they are important. That makes sense? Any more questions? Yes, this lady there, or this gentleman. <laughs> uh, this question might be coming from a highly unfit mind, I think, um, but that's implied in the question. Uh, because whenever I consider some of the uh, moral issues and intentions, on an intellectual level, um, 
not on a meditative level, but on an intellectual level, my monkey mind has a field day because, as you said, uh, you talked about addiction. And so my immediate mental extrapolation from that was, well, presumably one could become addicted to mindfulness and addicted to meditation. Um, that's a side salad. My main question <laughs> can. was, that's the, that's the monkey mind at work. But on the question of um, compassion, mm -hmm. if it's such a salient practice, should we therefore be compassionate towards cancer cells? Cancer, what's that? Cancer cells, which are living creatures, should we therefore extend compassion to a living creature, which of course is threatening to our life? How does one balance an intellectual issue, for me, um, with a generic statement about compassion? Um, I believe some form of Buddhism say, well, if you cannot see the creature, then it's, it's all right to be, to a degree, destructive to it. But of course, with such uh, cells, they are in many ways visible. And certainly with microscopic techniques, they are highly visible. So I throw this up because the intellectual mind is bringing that one in. Um, I wish, I wish those kind of questions didn't arise, but uh, they're extremely, that they are from my intellect rather than a position of uh, relaxed meditation, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Usually probably don't think much about relaxed meditation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you, if I understand your question correctly, um, are you saying, in talking about creatures, invisible creatures that we can kill. Yeah. And some traditions say, well, that's all right, because we don't see them. Well, I've heard that as an explanation, that mm -hmm. in some schools of Buddhist philosophy, it's a, is it visible or is it not visible to the naked eye? What, um, what, what, sorry? I've heard some explanations that yeah. it is a question of the appearance of the creature, whether it is visible to the eye or yeah. not. Um. Yes, yes. So it's a good question. It's definitely an intellectual question. Because reality is very different. Okay, we don't carry around a microscope to find out whether I'm walking on the baby ants. Okay, otherwise my life will be either the ants or me, basically. Mm -hmm. I will be spending the rest of my life trying to see what, I've, what I'm squashing. Uh, so it's a very impractical, isn't it? <laughs> so it's intellectual. But all we would end up like the Jains, you know, in the time of the Buddha, who had somebody carrying them on a palanquin, you know, <laughs> so they wouldn't have to walk on the ground and kill any animals. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But the Buddha, uh, you know, realized that a human being is, you know, by the nature of walking on two feet, two mm -hmm. feet is going to, you know, we're going to harm something, you know. So he didn't kind of um, obsess himself with this question. He just said, do the best you can, you know. And uh, 
Um, it's the intention that really counts a lot in the terms of walking the path, this path of practice. So, um, yeah, we do kill things. I'm sure there's plenty of things, even in my guts, you know, there's yeah. tons of things that's going on there. God knows what happened to them when I drink my Coke or something. Coca-Cola, I mean. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, I have no idea. But um, the, the, the path, you know, this question is a good question. But the answer is, you know, has to be also with the reality of now, what's happening now. And so, yes, you do, I'm sure, harm some beings unintentionally and by the very fact that you're walking on earth. Yeah? Mm. I, don't, I will never have a, a satisfactory answer to this intellectual question, and I'm okay with that. Mm. Yeah, I don't feel I need to um, have an answer particularly. You know, because for me, wisdom is the most important part, you know, I find uh, more in, more important the wisdom, you know. So, for example, um, you know, where there was a time when, um, you know, Ajahn Shah had, uh, in his monastery, had a, an invasion of ants, you know, there are millions of ants, I mean, you know. And basically, he said, it's either the monks or the ants, and the army came and killed them, you know. I I would not know what to do if I was in his place. You know, I, I I can't imagine putting myself in his feet in his shoes. But that's what he did. And so sometimes we have to make choice like that. You know, and he was a monk and one of the most formidable teachers in Thailand. You know, almost enlightened person. You know that that. Uh, so these things can happen. But as much as one can, you know, uh, it's important to consciously not harm anything, like for me. But it comes very naturally, you know, I mean, I'm amazed. I don't know, mindfulness does that, you know. And compassion, because the path is based in compassion. Looking at your suffering brings compassion, for example, you know, simple. People say, how do you develop compassion? Just understand your suffering, and that will lead to compassion. You know, and then you have people like the Dalai Lama, you know, in front of 18,000 people, and one question say, how do you develop compassion, uh, Your Holiness, you know? And he went very silent for about 10, a long time, in front of 18,000 people. And he said, easy, I just go to a children's hospital from time to time and stay with them, you know? So compassion, you can find ways of developing compassion. And, um, yeah. Your question is, I think you need somebody else to answer. Because for me, life is, has to be practical, you know, so, you know, say, to, to you refrain, and often the, sometimes the precepts are actually uh, written like this, to intentionally refrain from harming any living beings, you know. So intentionally is very important. I don't it know. almost seems to come down, as you rightly use the analogy of, is it the monk or is it the ants? Well, we said, um, well, it's like, um, you know, that's the, it's not an analogy, it's reality, you know, so it's, um, at the time, in that situation, yeah. it was reality. But uh, each situation will require a different response, so there's no kind of recipe for that, you know. That's why the intellectual question I tend to want for an answer that's absolutely sure and clear, and so, mm. don't know, we don't know, you don't know what you will do if somebody attacks you, for example, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows if murderer come to my throat, and you know what would I do? I often ask myself, you know, what would I do? Well, I might a... punch the person, you know, and kick them in their 
gut, you know. I notice, it's really strange. <laughs> I, have a, I have a kind of um, responses which I never had in my life. I was like, oh my God, what do I do? And something in me is... <laughs> I mean, on a, on a personal level, I had to out. get rid of a, um, a rat. Oh, the rat's and business, yeah. I yeah. wrestled with the issue of should I, should the rat go or should I let oh, it leave? Don't so worry, we it, have had this here many years. Every year we had a rat issue and ah. it's, some people are, can be very upset and some people are, yeah. But then if we don't do the rats, then we close down the monastery because of the well, hygiene. Yeah, yeah. So karmically, <laughs> is it, I mean, I thought, oh, well, is this going to affect my karma that I, I've killed that rat? Did the rat come into my life to present me with this dilemma? Um, Listen. All, all, all sorts of issues, which is it ultimately some sort of subjective feeling? I have no idea. Right. <laughs> I'll have a cup of tea then. Just... <laughs> yeah. Okay, anybody, any other questions? Well, if you don't have any other questions, we can adjourn. Yes? Okay. <laughs>